The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that we have been talking about in various segments of the program is relevance, archaeology, and relevance, because um, as uh, we have discussed in previous programs, there is always a curiosity on the part of the public as to how relevant the kinds of things that we do are. are to the contemporary world. world. And some of these issues involve political considerations. They also involve the nature of the types of information that we recover and how we place it in some kind of a context that is not necessarily the past, but views the past as sort of a vehicle for the future so that we understand where we're going and so that we actually accumulate some capital, if you will, as a medium and as a profession that has implications for the future and for survival of the planet, which obviously is a very important issue in this day and age. And so uh, today's topic is about archaeology and relevance. It's also about a new generation of archaeologists who are orienting the way they do their practice their craft in a different way in many cases. And uh, I think it's really relevant to discuss trends and future projections in how archaeology is done and what kind of message is projected to our audience because our audience uh, is increasingly sustaining our profession as uh, scientific institutions in the strict sense uh, diminish funding and we sort of have to prove ourselves in very many ways. My guest today is Dr. April Basaw, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. She has uh, undertaken a wide range of investigations in archaeology. She has done work on the interpretation of animal bones, and she has uh, presented a manual on that topic. And she is also interested in some other themes, specifically on water systems in New York City, and in techniques of ghost hunters, and that's something we will be discussing with her as this uh, 
discussion progresses. Uh, Dr. Basaw, thank you for appearing on the program. Thanks for having me. So why don't you give us a little bit of background about how you got into archaeology and how you started to orient your research in whatever direction it initially started? Well, I got into research um, in archaeology when I was an undergraduate and about to graduate with a degree in chemistry, and I had been working in chemistry and nuclear medicine for a while. And I found that um, although I was interested in those sorts of things, they didn't really answer questions about how the world worked. And I was always left wondering um, what the relevance of that was. I worked for Union Carbide on plastics and uh, how to make our plastics better and um, the things that make conditioner and shampoo more slippery. And I worked at uh, Brookhaven National Labs on the analysis of the effects of cocaine on the brain using radioactive tracers and things like that. And all of that was very interesting, but the application seemed very small. And I was just curious about the world around me in a bigger way. And I found that archaeology did that for me, uh, which is one of the reasons I get frustrated that other people don't see archaeology as being relevant to the world, because for me, archaeology makes the world uh, make sense. So I was about to graduate with my bachelor's in chemistry. I had a full-time permanent job offer handed to me in that field, and I really took a look at, do I want to analyze plastic for the rest of my life? So I (laughs) changed my focus and uh, applied for graduate school, and I only applied for two graduate programs in archaeology, and I said, I'll let those graduate programs decide if my future is in plastic or if my future is in archaeology, and I got into one of them, and I went, and then I started, you know, my career in archaeology focusing on animal bones because animal bones was very sciencey, so it made sense to me coming from a chemistry background. Um, whereas things like pottery analysis and lithic analysis can get a little wishy-washy as far as my scientific mind at that time. Um, it, when you have an animal bone, it's either a squirrel or it's not a squirrel, right? And you don't necessarily have that amount of certainty in other archaeological analyses. But through time, I realized that being hardcore science wasn't necessarily the only way to understand the world around me. So then I started branching out and doing lots of different things, uh, mostly in the historic or um, just between the prehistoric and historic realm of North America. I study North America because I live in North America and I want to understand North America better. So that's how I got here. It's kind of a squiggly line, um, not not necessarily one of those straight lines that my freshman students always assume their careers are going to take. That's an interesting, very interesting background, and I, I'm curious about it, um, especially since uh, I personally and uh, certainly on the basis of what we've been able to glean, archaeology really is moving in a sciency, if you will, direction for a variety of different reasons. Um, I'm just curious, did you work extensively in uh, private industry before you applied to grad school, or how did that work, just in terms of timelines? I worked um, for Brookhaven National Labs and Union Carbide in the chemistry and biology industry as an intern all throughout undergrad. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. My father is an immigrant to this country. He came here as an adult. So I've always had a job. I've had a job since I was 12 years old. So I was doing that sort of working intensely. I hadn't done 
anything in archaeology until I was a senior undergraduate and I went off to a field school. And then I did a master's for two years and then worked in CRM for five years before deciding to go back for my PhD. So in and out of industry, both in the uh, archaeology realm and in the chemistry realm. So you're, you've done a trajectory that uh, is becoming increasingly uh, commonplace where, um, well, not completely, obviously, because you, you did come from a, a different background in terms of your academic, original academic pursuits, but you went through the work world and then eventually landed on your feet in an academic setting. How do you convey that experience and its relevance to future students when they ask you, what kind of a career am I going to have in archaeology? Well, I usually tell students that the career they're going to have is one that they can't envision right now because we just go where things, opportunities come up, our interests change. You know, it's hard to really plan it out and not to stress over planning it out so much. But I'm also very active in trying to get all of my students' um, experience in CRM. My intro archaeology students always do field work and lab work, and it's real field work and lab work stuff that is my actual research. Um, last year, my intro archaeology students did a project for the National Park Service at the home of FDR to help save uh, an ice house, the oldest ice house at the home of FDR. And they were surprised that they were doing real archaeology. They thought they were going to watch me do it or they were going to watch other uh-huh. people do it. And I just threw them right in there. And my one rule in field work is don't die because everything else can be fixed as long as you tell me about it. And I treat all of the work that we do as a learning experience so that people will figure out, you know, how to work in the real world, that things aren't just laid out for you, that you make mistakes all of the time in everything that we do, making decisions, whether you're surveying a field, everybody makes mistakes, but it's about learning from those mistakes and then figuring out what that has taught you to bring you to the next step. So you're really sort of adopting the new generation's perspective on archaeological futures where, and we've discussed this on the program several times, wherein really there is no formulaic way of moving up or down in this profession. It's just a totally different profession than it was, say, 15, 20 years ago, and certainly more than that, where you would just go on a sort of a clear trajectory from... Uh, being an undergraduate student to doing some graduate work and then getting a PhD and then teaching, um, which is still a model that is utilized in many universities. How are you dealing with the fact that there are still a lot of programs that um, sort of position people to think in those terms? Well, I, I try to talk to a lot of people at conferences who are students, uh, undergraduates and graduate students, and, you know, listen to what they've been told and give them, you know, a different perspective. Because a lot of people are very scared by that track that is, you know, a formula for how do you get there and what if you make one mistake. And especially for women who are thinking about having a family, it automatically seems like the end of the world if they take time off to have a child. You know, I didn't have enough publications last year. Whatever it is, it's such a stressful uh, idea. So whenever I interact with students, I try to to talk to them about, you know, there are various ways to get there. If I could get to an academic position in archaeology from a chemistry undergraduate 
and not going straight through with a PhD and not having the perfect advisor who lined up everything for me, you know, I'm proof that that alternate way of getting there is there. And I feel like it's less pressure and it's more realistic and it allows people to think completely differently. I've been told several times in my career that the reason I've advanced is because I think about things unlike the other 1,000 people who get a degree in archaeology every single year in this country, you know, who follow that one trajectory that seems to be laid out. If you want to be creative, you can't just do what everybody else is doing. But, but my point is, and you're making it, I think, is the fact that I think at some point when you're, you're involved in pedagogy and training people, you sort of have to emphasize that it's no longer your professor's archaeology. It is mm-hmm. an archaeology where you absolutely need to be creative. You have to look at trends. You need to look at relevance. And you have to deal with uh, issues that are no longer programmed for you. And there is no uh, there is no pipeline that goes anywhere in particular, but you're left to your own devices to some degree, and I think your message is sort of uh, dealing with that kind of thing, isn't it? And be, be excited about it instead of scared about the fact that there's no uh, yeah, that's, that's Yeah, but I mean, obviously, there is a certain measure of creativity and sort of thinking outside the box that I think ultimately is going to be the real roadmap for succeeding in this profession. You have to be creative. And I think you're a really good example of that. So talk to me about politics in archaeology. You had mentioned that as, as an item that you are interested in. Uh, and how your work overlaps or intersects with uh, present and future political scenarios and relevant scenarios, if you will. One of the things that's always frustrated me is, you know, I'll, I'll have some amazing conclusion, what I think is an amazing conclusion about my site. Um, so, for example, I had been doing the archaeology of one-room schoolhouses, and I thought that was a great thing to do because everybody's gone to school. So everybody could understand my sites and my conclusions very quickly. But what I found is that people weren't really concerned about things that revolve around education. And they didn't see the past as a way of thinking about that. So I started my project on uh, the archaeology of the New York City water system as a way of challenging myself to see what can archaeology say about the current and ongoing crisis about natural resources. And the fact that most of our natural resources aren't natural in some sense. You know, you have to mine for them, you have to extract them, and as you're doing that, you're overlaying culture on top of it. So I started looking at how has New York City in the last 100 years specifically changed the areas that they get their water from to show that archaeology can be used as a case study scenario. People keep saying we can't predict the future. Yeah, we can't predict the future, but with archaeology, we can learn from the past. And it's easier for people to see that connection with recent issues, recent mistakes. So I've thrown myself into the politics of water and watershed management in the Hudson River area 
and seen the politics firsthand and had to try to deal with it. Uh, it's a very complicated situation in the fact that there are lots of different players. But, for example, one day when I brought my students out to uh, the Ashokan Reservoir, which is one of my research areas, it was 32 degrees outside. It was 8 o'clock in the morning. And I wanted to show them the reservoir because they had never seen it before. So I pulled over in this parking area that's a designated parking area, and I just pointed out the reservoir, and I was telling them a few things about the history. And a New York City Department of Environmental Protection officer threatened to arrest us because we were parked in a parking area but not between the white lines. And there was no other cars there at this time in this parking area. And I explained to him that I was a professor and I was just pointing something out. My car was still running. I had no intention of staying there and I was about to leave. And it escalated quickly. And lots of my interactions with the people around these reservoirs escalates quickly because they're in this landscape of conflict. And they're all upset about things that have happened in the past that are continuing to happen now and that are happening in the future. So it's a perfect opportunity for archaeologists to go in and make sure that they understand what happened in the past. And it's not based mostly on myth, storytelling, things like that, but there's a more of a reality to it and that we could either correct the story, fill in the gaps of the story, tell a different story. Instead of fighting over whose water it is, let's talk about where this started and what are the issues that are really causing the stress in these areas around there. So I've gotten a bit involved in the politics, but in a way of trying to understand the politics in order to make sure that my archaeology can speak to those politics. And I think that is a, a great example of where we need to go as archaeologists that might be uncomfortable for us to go. I mean, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of law written about all this stuff. It's hard for one person to contain 100 years of politics in their head um, and understand it all. But I feel like it, it's something that makes archaeology more relevant to the people who are having problems. So I want this archaeology, the New York City water system, to speak to what's going on in Detroit, to speak to what's going on in California, so that people see that when you are going to take water to bring it into your city, you're actually taking it from someone. And how do you know this? How do you know what impact it's going to have on these people? Well, let's look at 100 years of the impacts that it's had on these areas in New York and we could start to see case studies of what might happen. Maybe there's a better way to engineer our water systems than to move water from one group of people to another group of people and say that it's a natural resource. And we will continue our discussion, a very relevant discussion on archaeology and contemporary problems with Dr. April Beso right after these words. Please stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, 
and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working For You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Do you want to expand the legacy that you leave behind? Get the inspiration you need by hearing from others who are doing just that. Listen for Your Why with host Nalina Varinas. The show features amazing guests who have saved lives, helped others, and brought forth hope to others around them. By hearing their stories, you can make some stories of your own. Your Why can be heard every Friday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with. Uh, our special guest, Dr. April Beso, who is a uh, assistant professor of anthropology at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. She is a representative, essentially, of a new generation of archaeologists who are looking at relevance and addressing questions of politics and looking at the past as sort of a guide for the future in terms of understanding where we're going and how we're going to get there, in a sense, uh, taking a stand on a variety of different issues that seem to be becoming critical in uh, understanding our world and, and planning for our future. One of the projects that she's engaged in is looking at uh, the water systems of New York City to address contemporary issues that have certainly surfaced most recently in Flint, Michigan, and also out in the desertic areas of the West where water supplies are uh, rapidly being depleted and are certainly being diverted by a variety of different agencies for a variety of different purposes. Um, Dr. Besa, I'd like to uh, ask you about the relevance and how you connect the dots, if you will. You were talking about looking at the Shokin Reservoir here in, New York, in, in the greater New York area and looking at it as sort of a uh, microcosm, if you will, on how to plan water systems. I, I'd like to have you reconstruct how you got from actually researching water systems in the past and looking at what the lessons for the future might be. So I've 
been living in this area on and off for a while now, and if you ever come up to the Catskills of New York and you drive around, you see all these little brown signs everywhere that say, former site of, and then just the town name. And that has always intrigued me, uh, mostly as somebody who didn't know the history of that area. So I started looking into it and started seeing um, what had happened as far as for that one reservoir itself, the number varies depending on your definition of a town. New York City demolished between 7 and 11 towns to create that one reservoir. So whenever you hear something like that, the demolition of towns, to me that automatically triggers, well, there's archaeology, there's, there's remains that are there to, to be understood. But a lot of these towns, the 7 to 12 towns that were demolished, are essentially underwater, right? They're submerged. And there's lots of mythology about you can see church steeples emerging when there's a drought. And if you know archaeology, you know that the church steeple would never stay over 100 years uh, underwater. So, again, another example of how archaeology makes the world make sense. And I found that there are books and there are all sorts of articles written about those towns. But what I started wondering about is what about all of the people who didn't lose their town, who lived on the outskirts of those towns, who lived in the next town over, who didn't get bought out by New York City. And what New York City gave most of the people who lost their houses was half of their land's assessed value, and they had to sue for more. So it wasn't like it is today. New York City is still acquiring land, and they pay market value for the land today, which is a whole separate issue. But I started looking at when New York City acquires properties outside of the reservoir, they open them up for, res, uh, for recreation, including hunting and hiking. So I just started taking my students out to survey these properties, you know, intro archaeology students, upper level archaeology students as part of class exercises. And we would hike New York City owned properties that are almost 100 miles away from New York City and just document everything that we saw on the ground surface. We don't do any soil disturbance. We don't even disturb the artifacts. And there are building foundations, there's stone walls, there's roads and driveways, there's artifact scatters. So we started doing surface survey, pedestrian archaeology in what is essentially now the forest. But when this reservoir went in, these were all farmlands. So even the trees there are artifacts, right? So we go and we do judgmental surface survey, pedestrian survey. We just hike. And some of these properties are over 1,000 acres in size. So it's really hard to get them all. So we use LIDAR to try to find where there might be walls or uh, building foundations to guide our surface survey. And we go out there and we just document what used to be there. Right, So to the passerby, it's just forest. And isn't it great that the city is preserving the forest to ensure that the water is clear? But when you do the archaeology, you see that these were homes, these were businesses, these were mills, these were cemeteries. There are some cemeteries where it's um, over a mile hike into the woods to get to this cemetery. So we're basically documenting what used to be that was not bought out by the city, that was not submerged by the reservoir, but are the ripple effects of making a decision. We decided so, to dam a creek, and what happened after that? Well, we all know that um, reservoir projects 
have been a lifeline for archaeology in not only in the United States, but certainly in many parts of the world. <clears throat> the old river basin surveys, the old the dam surveys that were done in this country in the 70s and 80s, they have all affected major communities and certainly caused a lot of them to be submerged. And like you say, have effects on the peripheral towns and the peripheral communities that live there. So let's move from that to where what you're actually trying to gain by looking at these archaeological remnants and, and, and where does that go? So one of the things I'm trying to gain is an understanding for both myself and the public of the greater costs of deciding what to do with water. So when this summer, when the California water crisis was more in the news than it is right now, um, very notable people like William Shatner were proposing solutions that places like Oregon and uh, Seattle have so much water that all we have to do is create a four-foot-wide pipe on top of the ground surface to shuttle that water down to places like Los Angeles. And this was an easy solution. And if you start to talk about the history of the water system, you know that that won't work at all, that there is, that is not a solution. And the water that is in these other places has other uses that the people are using the, the water where it is right now. So to change one place to save another place. So by documenting all of these people who lost their properties, lost their livelihoods, not because the reservoir went in at that time, but because it changed their way of life, to use that as an example to say, hey, you're going to change the way of life of anyone wherever you take this water from See these people as an example. See how their economy shut down. See how it caused farmers to have nobody to sell their farm products to. See how there's this huge, bigger effect that it's not about where we're taking our water from. It's about who we're taking our water from. So I'm just trying to give voice to those ruins that are in the forest as a way of showing that, that you are going to change lives in that area where the water comes from. So you're essentially saying that it's not just a gross assessment of volume and water needs for immediate purposes, but basically it represents a shift in life ways and a shift in economies of areas that have been living a certain way for a very long time, so it creates a major disequilibrium. Um, I get that. Uh, that's a very major point. And... If you convey that message, how do you convey it? How do you do it? I mean, do you do it? Uh, who do you do you bring it to anyone's attention, or is it at this point uh, essentially uh, in the in the stage of being an exercise where you're just trying to develop this case pretty strongly and then disseminate it um, in a way that would actually affect people like urban planners or community planners in a way that uh, would be very productive in the future and say, wait a minute, before you guys go ahead and divert huge water systems, understand the implications of that. How do you do that? Well, I started with my students at Vassar. Lots of them go to New York City. It's a train right away. A lot of them are from New York City. And it's amazing to see their jaws drop when they realize that the water that they take for granted in New York City has an impact and that it's come from up here. And they tell me that that impacts them and impacts how they think of 
turning on their faucet, running their washing machine, things like that. And then I've gone to the towns that have been the most impacted by these water acquisition projects. I'm meeting next week with the uh, town of Olive, which is the Ashokan Reservoir, and I'm also studying the Boyd's Corner Reservoir, which is on the east side of the Hudson, and um, meeting with the town of Kent, and I gave the town of Kent a presentation to their historical society, and lots of them had no idea. So I used to convey it, um, other than going to these people, I do a lot of GIS. And I do map overlays, and the what we find in the woods, the building foundations, the artifacts, we don't collect anything. We don't excavate. We don't collect. All we do is take GPS tracks and waypoints and geotagged photos, and I import all of that into a geographic information system, and I overlay our finds on both historic maps and on contemporary maps, and they can see both how New York City has acquired most of their town and how that building foundation that we saw using a historic atlas, we could get a name. And we know who was there at one period in time. We could put it on a historic topo map and we could show how long that building was there. That building persisted for 100 years. Or we find buildings out in the woods that never made it onto a map, either an atlas map or a topo map, that shows us that those people were there for a long period of time. So I bring to people maps, and I bring to people the images of the photographs of everything that we find, and generally they're stunned that these things are in the woods. They're stunned that these are tied to this water preservation system that they thought was just about nature. And then they become very curious and they all want to go out into the woods and hike with me and see these things for themselves. So I've been giving conference presentations to bring this to other archaeologists. And it's amazing how if you search for, you know, the word water in almost every conference proceedings for archaeology, you might find one or two things. And water is one of the most crucial things for human life, and archaeologists aren't studying it. So I try to encourage them to look at water in the past. And the only people who are doing it in any real quantity are people in Mesoamerica, Mesoamerican archaeologists, and Roman archaeologists. Other places in the world, people aren't really talking about water in any large, uh, large way. And now I'm on sabbatical this semester. I'm starting to write a book that I hope will be... Um, more of a popular press, uh, at least have more of a popular audience, that is, here are my case studies from New York going all the way back to when Manhattan had its first water system on the collect pond near the southern tip of Manhattan. And the message is not only that you're taking water from people, but also that as soon as water has become easy from places like Detroit and New York City, the consumption of the water has skyrocketed so that it's, it's always a constant problem. There's never one solution and then it's gone. Interesting. I, I think that uh, that's a, a very valuable message to convey and it has a lot of implications for oh, what people are going to be thinking in the future and certainly for planners i think the relevance of of getting planners and and to look into the time timelines for these developments because as you said gis is a 
incredibly powerful tool for looking at things like how land use has changed, not necessarily by design, but simply by the effective diversion of water systems and their mobilization for, say, for the New York City network. And that you can see, right, you can see time slices of how land use patterns changed and how Mm -hmm. demographics change as a result and how the uh, signature of the cultural environment has completely changed. And I think those are the types of things that you're looking at in the long run, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it makes archaeology, I think, more relevant to most people. I, as far as I know, every human being on the planet drinks water or uses water in some way. And then hopefully it'll make people wonder, what else can archaeology tell me? You know, the, the dam project that you referred to um, in the past, the reservoir project that you referred to in the past, a lot of those focused on Native American sites that were being lost, and that's a very important thing. So, but I think a lot of people didn't ever see what those reservoir projects were doing as something that has interest outside of that one area that has a story to tell other than every time you create a reservoir, create a dam, you're going to lose something. But I want to bring it more to the contemporary so that other archaeologists can bring it more to the past, archaeology in general, and have people constantly asking, hey, we have this problem. What can we learn about from the past, from that archaeology, that we can see what a good solution might be? Well, and and again, you know, if uh, I would think that it's uh, on a global scale, I mean, you can look at water systems everywhere from Mesopotamia to the southwest to uh, the Indus Valley, where the mobilization of water was really one of the most significant developments, the evolution of drainage systems uh, as a result of the emergence of complex societies, those are, those are very grand issues that on a larger scale, I think, would actually translate very nicely to the issues of relevance that, that you're discussing. And I think uh, it's, it's critical to sort of bridge these things and to allow people to understand that, as you said, water, everybody drinks water, everybody utilizes water, everybody channels water for a variety of different objectives. They also dispose of water for various reasons, and, and that's something that becomes a very major uh, consideration in this age of susceptibility, uh, sustainability uh, going forward. We will be back with our guest, April Bezo, in a couple, after a couple of words, and stay tuned. We will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. 
Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health, all kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Good afternoon. This is Joe Schuldenrein with uh, my guest, Dr. April Besa, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at Vassar College in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. We have been discussing a variety of topics that expand the domain of archaeological research to relevance and to issues of contemporary concern. We've been discussing, in particular, a uh, very extensive study that she has done on the water systems of New York City and how we can look at land use changes and the impacts that uh, those changes have had as communities evolve and in many, many cases either disappear or get modified in terms of the economic and subsistence basis that these communities have when uh, they are impacted by drastic changes. Um, to water systems. And uh, one of the other topics that Dr. Beso is involved with and, and looks at is communication and communication with the public and looking at some contemporary trends in, in media, television, and so forth um, that have captured the public's imagination. And in the interests of that, she's essentially saying, well, archaeologists can obviously give us grand insights into the past. And, and one of the nexus uh, issues of that is ghosts and ghost hunters and people who go to old places and look for that sort of thing. And she's saying essentially that archaeologists have something to contribute. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your research in that way? So for a while I had been watching uh, ghost hunting shows because when I would flip TV channels, I would see what looked to me like a historic site that I wanted to learn about. And there was usually three or four men, maybe one woman, um, who would go into these places and they would tell a brief history of that place. Then they would turn off the lights, they would take out some equipment, and then they would seek as a way of communicating 
with the past by finding their ghosts. And it was amazing to me how almost every single episode was the same in what they found. There might be like one whisper, one knocking noise. They, they never find anything that is truly conclusive in their own ways of determining that. At the end of the episode, they pretty much say that we didn't find anything conclusive. So the only thing that's different from one episode to the next is the site and the site history that they give you. And in so many ways, what they're doing is archaeology in that they're going to historic sites and they're explaining the site's relevance to people. So why are people connecting with ghost hunting more than they're connecting with archaeology? was my next question. So I started studying these shows to figure out their formula. What makes watching people wander around in the dark exciting and interesting? Why do people do it over and over again? One of the shows has been on for 11 seasons. So I've come down to dissect it to see that it's really the adventure aspect that these ghost shows have that archaeology has lost. You know, if you go back to archaeology books in the early 1900s, they're adventure stories. You pick up an archaeology book today, and it's stories about computer programs and about looking in the archives, and we don't bring our audience along in all of that misadventure that we tend to have when we think that we have the right answer, and then we realize it's the wrong answer, and we go back again, and we don't share with them that same discovery that we enjoy when we're excavating a site and you pull something out of the ground that you've never seen before, we get excited, but we don't share that with the public in the way that ghost hunters do, that they see that excitement, they connect to it, they have these body cams and everything that you, you have this visual reaction. So I've been writing about how archaeology can be ghost hunting and ghost hunting can be archaeology using a sociologist's um, take on ghosts um, as the ghosts of place, as the ability to envision what has happened in some place in the past. And if you can tell a good enough story, almost anybody can think that they see or sense a ghost. So I've been playing around with this and taking students ghost hunting and seeing how it impacts them. And at first, they think it's just fun, it's adventure, you know, who knows what's going to happen. It's dark. We're going someplace that we're not allowed to go. But it's the after effects that are really amazing. They've heard one noise that they can't explain, and suddenly they start asking me the entire history of that building. Right? There's some way that it makes the past much more relevant because you're not lecturing. You're giving them information as they need the information. So I'm advocating that archaeologists could learn a lot from ghost hunters to figure out how to make the public care about places in the past, feel connected to those places, and enjoy the journey of discovery that is archaeology. So bring this around to a nuts and bolts situation where you can show us, for example, 
um, what 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 the impacts of the type of work that you have is on people who, for lack of a better word, uh, put a certain amount of stock or premium on ghosts per se, and and how you can either convince them that the archaeology is disproving that, or that the archaeology or or the the traditional stories uh, essentially have a very logical ending that would lead some people to believe in ghosts and and other people to say, okay, now I understand how this works and 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 how it has meaning going forward. Can you give us a case? Well, first off, I don't ever try to debunk because that's the first way of getting people to not be interested in you anymore. Understood. Understood. The group of people who are interested is who I want to bring along on my journey. So a very tangible case study, I when I was teaching at a college in Ohio, there was an 1852 octagon house on campus that was the oldest building on campus, and it had been abandoned for years. The roof was caving in. It rained inside as much as it rained outside, and the only thing living in there was a whole group of raccoons, right? There was raccoon droppings everywhere. Most people had no idea that this building even existed, even though it was on campus. And I taught a course called The Power of Place, where we did archival research, architectural history, oral history. We did every way of studying this this building. We also did archaeological excavation. And then towards the end of the course, we went and did ghost hunting, including using a Ouija board. And the first day of the class, I told the students who were going to study this building that they had walked past in order to get to the classroom. And they were like, what octagon house? What are you talking about? So I brought them in front of the octagon house, gave them notebooks, and told them to write down in the notebook what they thought of the building, just from what they knew then, just from the outside. And they said it was old, it was ugly, it should be torn down. I asked them what we should put there. They said we should put a Chipotle there. Didn't care about the building at all. So after we had done all of this research, you know, all of the, the history stuff, there were so many facts and numbers and people's names. And they were enjoying it because it was interactive, but they weren't connecting to any of it. And then we went ghost hunting, and it was amazing to see that every time we got something, you know, a noise, there was a smoke detector that needed a battery that kept beeping. And the students at one point were saying, what if the smoke detector is what's trying to communicate with us, right? They were so desperate to see a ghost that they would made anything into a ghost, but they used all of the historical information we had acquired through our research to try to make those ghosts make sense, right? They were making the ghosts in that process. And then we did the Ouija board and random letters were coming up on the Ouija board and they were connecting it to things that I had forgotten about the history, you know, there were letters that came up. They're like, oh, are those the initials of the person who lived there in 1910? Like, they, they used all the information that they had. The week after we did the ghost hunting, we did public tours. And the students had to have their own tours. Every student did their own thing. There was no scripts allowed because I wanted them to interact with the tour group just like they did with ghost hunting. And the people who came out of the tour asked if they could go back in with a different student because they wanted a different story. And the students were so proud and interactive and they weren't worried. These were just general people from the public. They weren't worried if they knew enough information, if they were getting anything wrong. They just told people about their sense of that place. 
And people were coming out asking what they could do to help save the building. The students tried to start an organization to repair the building. They went to the president of the college to ensure that the building would be saved. And at the end of that semester, the president boarded up all of the holes so the animals couldn't get in. It was no longer raining inside. They created change. They talked about creating a historic preservation organization. And the last day after the exam, I said to them, who wants to go over to the Octagon House one more time? It was right before Christmas. They could have gone home. It was cold outside. Everybody went to the house. And they told me that in the middle of the semester, they had started hanging out at that house on the front porch, that they had felt such a sense of ownership of that place. They took pictures of each other, hugging the walls, and they were so happy and grateful to have had that place in their life. So the power of that ghost thing being not that there is a paranormal, not that there is something that's right and something that's wrong, but that there's a way that people who aren't professional historians or archaeologists connect with the past, that we need to make sure those people get those experiences so that they can start feeling the way that we as professional historians and archaeologists feel about these places. So it's kind of like an an entrance, it's a gateway drug, if you will, to how fascinating the past and past places can be by just, let's look at it a different way. And ghost hunting, there's no timeline, there's no chronology, there's no right story, there's no wrong story, and there's only interpretation, so anybody can contribute. So that's a starting point. And then they get excited and they want to know the real story, and then we can take over with what the real history and science says. So... Have you seen in terms of having done this work and having impacted various people, not only students, but members of communities who may have stronger or sharper connections to these places and and phenomena, if you would, that that they're really starting to get interested in, in the real foundations of what that place represents and and why these sounds occur and why these phenomena take hold. And so you're you're essentially changing, well, I won't say you're changing people's minds, but you're certainly giving them a new perspective on this. And uh, to some degree, I guess it's it's, uh, emerging into some kind of rational, analytical perspective on these sorts of things. Yeah, I live in the main dorm at Vassar College. The whole college used to be this dorm. It was built in 1861. And last semester, I gave a lecture to my dorm about ghost stories of the dorm. And I just read to them a ghost story that I had compiled from my research in the newspaper and things about the history of the ghosts in this building. And every student wanted to know after the fact how they could find out who had lived in their dorm in the past. So I went from a story that may or may not be true to students wanting to go to the archives. When do students want to go to the college archives of the college that they go to? Because they wanted to know the history of their little eight foot by eight foot square, right? So I see that connection. I see it happening over and over again. And whether they get to the archives or not, it's always in their mind now that wherever they are has a place in the past. And anything that might be going on in their room, they could blame it on a ghost in an intangible sort of joking way. Or they could wonder, has that ever happened to somebody who lived in this room before? 
unfortunately, our time has flown by us, and uh, I want to thank my guest, Dr. April Basaw of Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, for helping us navigate some interesting new themes and topics in archaeology and for pointing the direction in ways that future archaeology will be conducted and its relevance to the contemporary cultural and to some some degree uh, professional scenes that uh, we are all part of. Thank you so much for appearing on the program. Thanks for having me. And until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein signing off for Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We will see you in a week from now. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schildenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.